Acts chapter 23, starting at verse 12 through verse 35. Would you bow with me in prayer and we'll ask God to guide our study. Our Heavenly Father, we just pause for a moment to think about who you are, to think about your greatness, to think about how wonderful you are and gracious and loving and forgiving, to think about your sovereignty, to think about your providence in our lives to think about the way you work in our lives in through ways that are a mystery to us, but by which you are building your plan for our lives and fulfilling your plan for our lives. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son who willingly bore our sin in his body on the cross as our substitute so that we might have eternal life, that we might become a part of your family and we might pass from death to life, no longer fearing death, but knowing that what awaits us is an eternity with you. And all you ask is that we put our trust in your son and his finished work at Calvary. If there's even one here in this service or in our earlier service, Lord, who has yet to make that decision, I pray that by your spirit you would draw them to yourself, and they would make that most important decision in their lives. God, thank you for your word. Help us to understand and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. What I really like about Acts chapter 23, and I find myself saying that at about every passage in the book of Acts because there's so many really good things, but what we find in Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 35 is how did Paul remain calm in the midst of turmoil? How did Paul deal with the turmoil and uncertainty in his, in his life? And I find that so important because uh, many of us deal with turmoil, deal with uncertainty in our lives. In fact, I might say that there is nothing certain in this life to you and to me except for our relationship with God, except for His involvement in our lives. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is uncertain. But it's instructive, I think, to see how Paul dealt with the uncertainty in his life. We're going to see as we go through this passage that Paul was able to deal with the uncertainties in his life, and you and I are able to do that if we do four things. And we're going to see this as we go through the passage, and I'll try to remember to repeat them at the end. The first is, to deal with the uncertainties of life, Paul did this, and we must do this, and that is to commit ourselves to the plan of God. To commit ourselves to the plan of God. Secondly, we have to have faith in the promises of God. We have to have faith in the promises of God. Paul committed himself to the plan of God. He had faith in the promises of God. Thirdly, we must trust the providence of God. Providence is such an interesting doctrine in the Word of God, and we're going to spend some time talking about the doctrine of the providence of God in our lives. Fourthly, and this is, this is one that 
we may, might have more difficulty over, and that is we have to understand that God will use unlikely people and unlikely institutions in our lives to help us. God will use unlikely people and unlikely institutions to help us in our lives, to fulfill his plan for our lives, to fulfill his promises in our lives. So that's what we're going to see as we go through this passage of the Word of God. Warren Wiersbe says about Acts 23, verses 12 to 35, that as you review the events recorded in this chapter, you cannot help but be impressed with the commitment of the the Apostle Paul, to his calling. He did not look for the easy way out, but for the way that would most honor the Lord and win the lost. Right from the start, Paul embraced God's plan. Paul embraced God's will for his life. Right from the start, Paul embraced spiritual growth in his life, growth in the Word of God, growth in obedience to the Word of God, right from the start. And you see, especially in this chapter, Paul did not look for the easy way out, but he looked for the way that would most honor the Lord and win the lost. Secondly, Wiersbe says, we're also impressed in this section of Scripture, with the amazing providence of God in caring for Paul, his servant. The amazing providence of God in caring for Paul, his servant. Wiersbe quotes Psalm 34, 7, which says this, For the angel of the Lord guards all who fear him, and he rescues them. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? It means that God protects His own. God Himself protects His own. Wiersbe concludes, Paul was alone, but not alone. Don't you like that? Paul was alone, but not alone. His Lord was with him, and he had nothing to fear. His Lord was with him, and he had nothing to fear. Well, we finished last week at verse 11. Remember, Paul is in the midst of the turmoil in his life uh, because of what happened in the temple when he is falsely accused of teaching against the Jews, when he is falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the Jewish section of the temple. And you know what ensued, the riot that ensued, the desire for the Jews to, to put Paul to death, to rip him to pieces, to, to stone him to death. He's saved by the Romans. Uh, the Romans arrange for him to go to the Sanhedrin and present his case at the Sanhedrin. And it happens all over again. It happens all over again. Paul's life is on the line. And once again, Paul's saved by the Romans. He's saved by the Romans. Well, after this meeting at the Sanhedrin, verse 11 tells us the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as, <clears throat> as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
Now that tells us something important. Paul knew that nothing could happen to his life until after testifying in Rome. Anything that was going to happen to him could not happen before he testified in Rome because God promised him what? You're going to testify in Rome as you did in Jerusalem, which means that there was a plan that Paul bought into, plan that we see many times Paul being confronted about from the time he came to faith in Jesus Christ about the difficulties he would face in life. So he knows the end of the journey. He knows the end of the journey. God, his travel agent, has booked his flight, so to speak, to Rome, right? He knows the end of the journey, but what he doesn't know is what he'll endure between this time and the end of that journey at Rome. Uh, I was thinking about this, and you may find this amusing. I don't know. You probably won't. It's okay. It never stopped me before, did it? Never did. Uh, years ago, when we were ministering in Arkansas, I was at the church in my office on a Saturday, and the phone rang. And I, I picked up the phone and uh, mentioned the name of the church, and all of a sudden, this lady's voice at the other says, Oh, no, I got the wrong number. I was calling a travel agent. You can't help me. I said, Nothing unless you want to go to heaven. It's one of the few times in my life when I was quick on my feet, you know. <laughs> and all flustered, she said, oh, no, 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 I got that all taken care of. I hope she did. She didn't want to talk to me anymore after that. <laughs> but uh, I've thought about that many times. But Paul's divine travel agent has booked his trip to Rome. Paul knows he's going to Rome but he doesn't know what he's going to endure between the time in Jerusalem and when he gets to Rome to preach the gospel. And so we, God comes to him in verse 11, tells him to take courage, and then immediately the next morning we read in verse 12, the next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy now, we don't know which Jews these are. There are many that believe these are the Asian Jews who originally accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish portion of the temple. Uh, so some believe these are the Asian Jews. And you can uh, decide for yourself. Look at Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 29, where it talks about these Asian Jews. We don't know. We don't know. But the next morning, some section of the Jews, formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in the plot. More than 40 people made a vow before God that went something like this, God, may you curse me if I fail to do this. God, may you curse me if I fail to kill Paul. And they bound themselves by this oath. Verse 14, They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more information about this case. And we are ready to kill him before he gets here, between 
the fortress of Antonio and the Sanhedrin, they're ready to put Paul to death. So here we see Paul facing death another time, of multiple times against his life. Well, you know if you know the rest of the story that they never get to Paul, and we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning talking about why it is that they never get to Paul. But before we get to that, I want you to notice what one writer said, it is strange how the fanatical hatred of the Jews, God's chosen people, contrasts with the impartial, impartial justice of the commander, a heathen in Jewish eyes. Here was a heathen commander, a Roman commander. The, the Jews hated the Romans. Here's a heathen commander who is protecting Paul. Here is a heathen government, an immoral government with immoral leaders protecting Paul. And through protecting Paul, they're protecting the church. That's part of what it is that Luke wants us to see here. Luke wants us to see the Jews were fanatical. The Jews were filled with hatred. It was the immoral pagan government of Rome that saved Paul and exonerated the church. In fact, we're going to see in this passage one of the something, I think it's six times in the book of Acts that the church is exonerated and Paul is exonerated. One writer said, every item of the narrative emphasizes the depth to which the Jewish nation has fallen and the comparative honor of the Roman government. Boy, is that an upside-down situation? The Jews who should have been honorable, the Jews who were to be worshiping the God who created everything we see, the Jews who were looking forward to a Messiah and missed the Messiah who came in Jesus Christ. Compared to the Romans are not honorable. The important point that Luke is trying to get us to understand is this. God used a heathen, heathen government to protect Paul and to advance his program. God used a heathen government to protect Paul and advance his program. You see, in the providence of God, he'll use people and institutions that surprise us. That surprise us to accomplish his will. Another writer said the point that Luke is trying to make is not just support for the Roman state and its exoneration of Christianity, but that God can use even a pagan government to protect His messengers and to accomplish His purposes. It's interesting to see the contrast in Paul's life. It's interesting to see the contrast in Paul's life Paul was once more like the Sanhedrin than even they themselves. He was once murderous against Christians. Paul hated Christianity. 
He persecuted Christians. He did all he could do to dissuade people from it. He used fear and threats and even murder. He was a henchman for the Sanhedrin. See, that's the difference. That was before Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, before Paul came to know the Savior. That's the difference between zeal for religion and zeal for Christ. That's the difference between zeal for religion and zeal for Christ. Zeal for religion is marked by hatred. Zeal for religion is marked by fear, marked by anger. Zeal for Christ. And we see this difference so starkly in Paul's life Zeal for Christ is marked by love and marked by courage and marked by forgiveness and marked by reason. How hypocritical were these Jewish leaders? How hypocritical were these Jewish leaders? Larry Richards point out, points out the blatant hypocrisy of the religious leaders, he says, is shocking. The blatant hypocrisy of the religious leaders is shocking. And then he points a finger at you and me and says something I think we need to hear. And that's this. We need to be on guard against professing Christian values in our lives and then acting in a way that denies them. That's tough, isn't it? We need to be on guard against professing Christian values. So many Christians loudly profess their values all the way, all the while that they are denying their values by their lifestyle and words. We need to be on guard, as the writer said. Well, as I mentioned, you, you know the rest of the story, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but uh, they never do get to Paul, do they? The Roman government protects him from them. And uh, Dr. Ryrie Riley says this, it is not recorded whether or not the 40 conspirators starved to death. I like that. It's not recorded whether or not the 40 conspirators starved to death. Well, don't worry, folks. They didn't. You see, they had an interesting thing that they would do in that day. Even though the law said that if you take an oath, you must keep the oath. If you take an oath before God, you must keep the oath. Even though the law said that, they made ways to get out of an oath. All you had to do was go to a rabbi and have him cancel the vow. Isn't that convenient? No, these conspirators did not starve to death. There were four types of vows that could be broken in that day. In other words, almost every contingency was covered. You could make almost any vow you wanted to make before God and break it with the sanction of the Jewish leaders, with the sanction of a rabbi. The four types of vows that could be broken, historians tell us, are vows of incitement, Vows of exaggeration. Vows made in error. I personally love that one. Oh, gee, I just, I made a mistake. 
vows of incitement, vows of exaggeration, vows made in error, or vows that could not be fulfilled by reason of constraint. Well, that pretty much covers it all. Never mind that it violated both the spirit and the letter of the Jewish law, but is really in character, keeping in, uh, with the character of the high priest. Well, here's where verse 16 is where we encounter the providence of God in Paul's life. Where we encounter the providence of God in Paul's life. Verse 16 we read, But when the son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Now this is pretty amazing. There are so many questions that are raised. We haven't heard about Paul having a family. In fact, it was commonly believed, according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, where Paul said he has suffered the loss of all things, that he meant that he was disinherited by his family for accepting and proclaiming Jesus as his Messiah. We haven't heard about Paul's family. This raises some interesting, tantalizing questions. Number one, was, was the nephew a Christian? We don't know. We're not told here. All, all that we know is that fortuitously, and think providence, fortuitously, Paul's nephew overheard this plot. Why did he overhear it? Why was he near plotters like that? We don't have a clue. We just know that in God's providence, he did. And you're going to find a lot of things like that in your life. And I'm going to find a lot of things like that in my life where things happen that we have no explanation for. And people and things that are unlikely to us are used by God to further his plan for us. Well, was his nephew Christian? We don't know. Did Paul's sister live in Jerusalem? Or did she live in Tarsus and send her son to study in Jerusalem, much like uh, we believe happened to Paul? Paul's father was a Pharisee, and uh, we believe they sent him to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Is that the case here? Did Paul's sister-in-law live in Jerusalem? Did she just send her son to study in Jerusalem? The third question that comes up, if Paul had family in Jerusalem, why didn't he stay with them? Why didn't he stay with them? Another question is, how, does Paul, how did Paul's nephew gain this information? How did he get close enough to these conspirators? Another question, how old was he? Neonias is the Greek word here, and it normally is translated boy or teenager, but in Acts 7.58 is used of Paul in conjunction with Stephen's stoning. So it was used of a young man in his 20s. So uh, your guess is as good as any scholar's guess as to how old this nephew was. Isn't that amazing? Paul's nephew accidentally hears about this plot against his uncle 
and goes and tells his uncle about it. My goodness, what a coincidence. Mm -mm. It's not a coincidence. It's the providence of God. It's the providence of God. We see it, we see it in the scripture in so many ways. And, and what I want to do in the next five minutes, <laughs> this will be fun, is uh, give you a primer on the providence of God. We see the providence of God many times in Scripture and, and uh, more times than I have time to share with you. I just want to share two uh, incidences of the providence of God at work in the Scripture, two that I'm sure you're familiar with. The first is found in Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. You remember Ruth and Naomi come back to Israel from exile. They had exiled themselves because of a famine. Her husband and two sons died while they were out of the country. And she comes back and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Call me bitter. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, comes back with her and is committed to her. And you see, it was allowed of poor people in those days to go behind those who uh, uh, would harvest a field, and they were able to go behind the harvesters and anything the harvesters mixed, uh, missed. rather. And, and by the way, the Scripture tells harvesters miss a lot, especially at the corners and other places, so that poor people would have a means of food. And so Ruth, knowing that, decides to glean in a field that coincidentally belongs to Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer, somebody who could redeem her and Naomi. A kinsman redeemer. And I love it. The scripture says, and one of the translations says it this way, as it turned out, she was in the field of Boaz. As it turned out. Wow, what a coincidence. Folks, that's not a coincidence. That's the providence of God. The providence of God. Another example is from the book of Esther. Esther chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And again, I wish we could turn to these, but we can't. Esther chapter 6, you can turn to them in your own study. Esther chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, is the account of how one night the king had a sleepless night. So what a coincidence. He had a sleepless night. Folks, wasn't coincidence. It was the providence of God. He couldn't sleep. And when the king can't sleep, no one sleeps, you know? And so he tells his underlings, bring, bring me the history of our country and, and read it to me. Maybe that will make me sleep. You know, we go out and turn the TV on and say, that thing, oh, the idiot box will put me right to sleep. He had his, he had his people read to him. And they read to him a section that talks about how Mordecai the Jew saved uh, his life. 
because Mordecai had overheard a plot against the king and he reported it and the plotters were put to death and the king was saved. And so the king says, well, what was done for Mordecai? And they said, nothing, sir. Nothing was done for Mordecai. Now, coincidentally, at the same time, Haman, who hated Mordecai because Mordecai would not kowtow to him, he hated him, he was going to his friends and he was saying, what am I going to do with this guy? He won't treat me with the deference to which I should be treated. What should I do? And they said, look, no, don't trouble yourself over this. Make a gallows and impale Mordecai on the gallows tomorrow. Haman is happy as a lark, problem solved, get to work. And he can't sleep, so he very early in the morning, he wants to get to the king before anybody else does because he wants permission from the king to put Mordecai to death by impaling him. The king can't sleep. The king finds out about what Mordecai did for him in saving his life, and he says to his attendants, who, who, who's here right now? Who's here? Well, Haman had gotten there early so he could see the king. So they said, Haman's here. He said, good, Haman's a good guy. Send him in. He doesn't know Haman very well. Send him in. Haman is thinking, oh my goodness, the king wants to talk to me. I'm going to get in there. Mordecai's as good as dead. And the king says to him, Haman, what should be done for the person the king wants to honor? Haman thinks, who else but me? King wants to honor me, I'm sure of that. So he thinks about everything he would like, like, like we'll, we'll take, have somebody uh, take him around the city on the king's horse and, and shout out, this is what's done for the man that the king wants to honor. And, and Haman's thinking, wow, I can see myself on that horse right now. It's going to be wonderful. And the king says to him, great, what a good idea. I want you to do it for Mordecai. Haman was going in to seek Mordecai's death. But God in his providence intervened. What a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep that night. What a coincidence that Haman was outside the king's chamber that morning. What a coincidence. It's not, folks. It's the providence of God. It's the providence of God the word providence means literally foreseeing. So the meaning of it is to provide for the future. A theological definition of providence found in lectures in systematic theology says it this way, that providence is the continuous activity of God whereby he makes all the events of the physical, mental, and moral realms work out for his purpose. Let me, let me say that again. Providence is the continuous activity of God whereby he makes all the events of the physical, mental, and moral realms work out for his purposes. 
In other words, the scripture teaches that God exercises sovereign rule over all of the universe and all of the parts of the universe. God's providence in the scripture says that God rules over the birth, career, and death of men and women. God's providence rules over the successes and failures of men and women. God's providence rules over even trivial things like counting the hairs on our heads, a job that has gotten much easier for God in my life. God rules over the needs of His people. God rules over the destinies of the saved and the unsaved. God rules over the free acts of man. I want you to look up a couple of passages, not this minute. Romans 8.28, a familiar passage, I'm sure, and Proverbs 16.1, and Proverbs 21, verses 1 and 2. Man makes his plans, but God does what? Directs his heart. That's what God rules over. Well, how does he exercise providence? Well, he exercises providence in several ways. He uses his word. He uses his word. He uses our reason. He uses inner checks and restraints. He uses outward circumstances. That's what we're seeing in Acts 23 using outward circumstances. He inclines the hearts of men and women in one direction or another direction. That's the providence of God. And it is at work in your life and it is at work in my life and we see it at work in Paul's life in this coincidental circumstance of Paul's nephew learning of the conspiracy against him. Well, verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give, up to them. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. Well, the, the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment. Now, I want you to do some math for me here, all right? Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. How many did the commander provide soldiers to protect Paul? 470. 470. Against how many conspirators against Paul? 
40, when God does it, He does it right. When God does it, He does it right. Verse 25, he wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Now, there was not much excellent about Felix. The Roman historian Tacitus called him a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. You mean to tell me that God's putting Paul's life into the hands of a person like that? Yes. Yes. Because God will use unlikely people and unlikely institutions in your life and in my life to take care of us. This man was seized, verse 27, by the Jews. They were about to kill him. Now I want you to notice as I read through his, uh, what was in his letter, um, he really knows how to put lipstick on the pig. You know what I'm talking about? He really knows how to make himself look good. He really knows how to make himself look good. He really knows how to, uh, and this is kind of funny because we think we invented spin in the 21st century. They were doing spin in the first century. And he is spinning. In fact, they're spinning so much you could get dizzy reading this letter. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and I rescued him for I learned that he was a Roman citizen. Wait a second, Lysias. You at first thought he was an Egyptian. It's later that you found out he was a Roman. And that was while you were about to do what? Flog him! Which can never be done to a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty of something. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations, now this is important to underline it in your Bible, I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. One of the six times in the book of Acts that Christianity is exonerated, that Paul is exonerated. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out the orders took Paul with them during the night, brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him. Why? Because the most dangerous part of the trip was already over. The latter part of the trip was safer. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor, who is Felix, has to determine if he has jurisdiction. So we read, the governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case. He determined he had the right to hear the case. <coughs> I will hear your case when your accusers get here. <coughs> then, he, excuse me, then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. The conspirators were ready to put Paul to death. He winds up in custody, but he's in custody where? 
in a palace. In a palace. The Life Application Bible says this, God works in amazing and amusing ways. God chose to use the Roman army to deliver Paul from his enemies. God's ways are, are not our ways. Ours are limited, his are not. Don't limit God by asking him to respond your way. When God intervenes, anything can happen much more and much better than you can anticipate. So what do we see here? How do we deal with the challenges in our lives, with the uncertainty in our lives? Four things that we started with and we'll close with. Number one, commit ourselves to the plan of God. That's Acts 20, 24, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Number two, have faith in the promises of God. Acts 23, 11, Romans 8, 28 and following. Number three, trust the providence of God. Number four, understand that God may use unlikely people and institutions to help us. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for the encouragement that we see through the experience of, experiences of Paul. Thank you for showing us the way to deal with the uncertainties in our own lives and the challenges in our own lives. Help us to commit ourselves to your plan Help us to have faith in your promises. Help us to see your providence and help us to realize you use unlikely people and institutions to care for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.